This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Cindy Dale. Cindy Dale is an internationally renowned author, speaker, intuitive healer, visionary, and business consultant. Cindy has been trained in multiple healing modalities, including shamanism, intuitive healing, Lakota medicine, and Reiki. She has written several groundbreaking books on the chakras, including Advanced Chakra Healing. With Sounds True, Cindy has published several books, including a book called The Subtle Body Encyclopedia and The Subtle Body Practice Manual. She also has a new book with Sounds True called The Journey After Life, What Happens When We Die, in which she presents a modern book of the dead full of insights into the most mystifying questions of our mortal existence. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Cindy and I spoke about the similarities between birthing and dying, and how and when the soul enters and exits the body. We talked about what Cindy calls the 12 planes of light, and how these 12 planes of light can be experienced now while we're alive, as well as when we die, and how these planes relate to the 12 chakras, the 12 chakras being an expanded model of the chakra system that Cindy teaches. And finally, we talked about what the purpose might be of our soul's evolution through lifetimes. Here's my conversation on what happens when we die with Cindy Dale. Cindy, I'm happy to have this chance to talk with you about your new paperback book with Sounds True, The Journey After Life, What Happens When We Die. And to begin with, this idea that we could know what happens when we die. To be honest with you, I think that I had come to the conclusion, if you will, that that was something that was unknowable, that no one really knows, that you can't really get people to confirm, yes, this is definitively what happens when we die. But yet here you're offering a model and a vision of what happens when we die. Is this something that we can know? I believe it is, Tammy. And each of us, I think, can understand death in our own way because we are each individuals and very unique. I mean, we know about our lives in a way that's very different than how other people know about their lives as well. Um, But when we really look at it, and a lot of spiritual tracts and treatises and processes and religions suggest that life and death really aren't so different. You know, one is really just a reflection of the other. And so in in many ways, uh, 
you know, the kids will tell you this too, that, you know, that so many people are actually walking zombies, uh, that life and death aren't really so very different. You know, that we've, uh, you know, been through each many, many, many different times. And so stored within us, stored within our soul, I believe even stored within our physical framework and makeup and ourselves, are memories, not just of other lifetimes, but also of what has occurred to us in between lifetimes or in that sort of stage that we call death. Um, You know, we're just so black and white, aren't we, especially in our Western culture? You know, and we we like that. I think it provides a lot of us, myself included, a sense of safety, you know, to think that, okay, when I'm alive, here are the rules, and when I'm dead, there's a different set of rules. And I, being raised Christian, grew up being told, well, you know, this is what you have to do while you're alive so that when you're dead, you can just sing happily ever after. You can be like one of those angels in the clouds. And uh, upon even researching the New Testament and some of the apocryphal or the books that didn't make the Bible, you know, I discovered that, you know, even the so-called master of Christianity, Jesus, was not really distinguishing between life and death. In, in many, many passages, he said, um, heaven is on earth, heaven's inside of you, it's here, it's right now. And so having puzzled that for many, many years, um, when I was a kid and in my 20s, that kind of set me off to do as much research as I possibly could in reflection as well, you know, kind of asking about what is this thing called death? And is it really something that kind of looms tomorrow, you know, in the tomorrow of the afterlife? Or is there not, you know, much about it anyway that we can embrace, we can embody, we can learn from while we're alive? So I really think that the veil is quite blurry, if there is a veil at all. I think there's just a veil in our perception. Um, but if we start to if we start to pretend there isn't a veil, we we can see an awful lot about death in our in our very existence. Okay, well let's pretend that there isn't a veil as our conversation continues, and tell me what you see. We'll begin with about the dying process how you see the dying process, what you see happening for people. Well, I, I, dying is that transition that's very similar, and I'm not the only one to say this, to the birthing process. You know, as even in our everyday lives, we're constantly in transition in some way or place or state. I'm uh, now a mom of a 15-year-old, and I've been preparing for Gabe, uh, Gabe's college years uh, for about three years already. <laughs> And he he would be the first to to agree with that. Uh, a few years ago, we were watching one of the Toy Stories, and it was the version in which the boy goes off to college, and I just started sobbing. And Gabe was only 12, looked at me and said, are, are you crying again? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm crying again. He goes, are you crying because I'm going to go to college? I said, yeah, I'm ca- crying because you're going to go to college. He goes, Mom, that's like six years. I said, I know, but the point is you're still going to go. Uh, so I, I, 
I think sometimes we lose track in our lives about how much we're doing transition. You know, and just the same as there's a transition period around birth, the planning for it, you know, the caring of the child, the changing of the life, the actual birth itself, which I can say is very painful. I know a lot of women say it's just quite the lovely process, um, but I thought it was extraordinarily painful and out of this world painful. Um, sometimes dying can be very much the same. The typical dying process, and I'm subtracting from this overarching uh, example, um, you know, I'm subtracting people who die in accidents or in crises or, um, you know, something very unexpected. Typically, it takes about seven years, I believe, for the body itself to prepare for the death. Um, and there's kind of a magic around the number seven. Our energy centers in the body evolve every seven years. And, you know, a lot of even therapists will say that we seem to live in seven years kind of chunks. And typically the soul, which is the part of us that, that goes from lifetime to lifetime, and it's implied then it's very aware in between lifetimes as well, you know, starts to prepare for its next journey, its leaving of the body, about seven years before somebody actually dies. Um, when we're born, I believe that the soul actually enters through the bottom of the body. Now, we're just a little bitty fertilized egg, um, but in that area that we would call the lower part of the body and spirals in, in a clockwise spiral. And when we die, the soul it actually at those moments of death, you know, exits kind of typically or or ideally through the very top of the head. So it's ascended even through the physical body um, and then spirals out counterclockwise into kind of almost, you could say, an anti-world versus this world uh, and and then makes its exit into these higher planes of existence that, that are already around us, Tammy. They're already here. Uh, we just don't tune into them or interact with them very much. Um, there's a lot of other, of course, ways that people die. I work with a lot of people actually in my practice, intuitive practice and healing practice, who have died or have just lost people. And, um, you know, sometimes, for instance, in a crisis, the soul will exit really quickly as in through the wound site. So if somebody, for instance, dies of a heart attack, the soul may exit through the heart. Or if they're, they die from a gunshot, the soul may just burst out through that wound place. Um, but typically the soul, the soul kind of goes through a seven-year uh, preparatory, you know, where it's making peace, it's, you know, saying its goodbyes, it's gathering, um, you know, kind of kind of finishing up the cleaning of the nest here on earth, and then it begins to transcend to the other side. And I don't know if you've experienced this. You know, it's something sometimes people think is kind of creepy to talk about. Um, but every so often, I find that I can tell who might be on their way out. Um, it's just a look about somebody, there's, there, it's not a, necessarily a vacancy, but there tends to be a filminess to their energy, um, a bit more glow to their, their body or their face, you know, a sense of distractedness. And that's typically what somebody looks like mm, anywhere between a few months to, you know, a year or two before they actually transition. Uh, because the soul really is you know, kind of becoming, again, its greater self. It's going through an, an enlightening experience, really, you know, and it's spending a little bit more time on the so-called other side 
preparing that home, preparing itself to be there. Um, there's, there's a great quote by a shaman, Holger Kalweit, uh, K-A-L-W-E-I-T, who, who states that to die before we die, we don't die when we die. And I think what he's speaking to is this transition of the seven years, you know, that there's a lot that we can do in our lives that enable a graceful death and, and enable really truly an enlightenment process through the dying, however long it takes. Um, but again, he's really saying that all our lives perhaps are a preparation to dying. It's one really for sure thing is that we're going to die. And so I think the sooner we realize that and embrace it and figure out what that means for us and really kind of taste the nectar of death in our lives, the the more graceful our exit can be. Now, Cindy, I have so many questions for you, but let's just see if we can knock these off one at a time. You were Perfect. comparing the death process to the birthing process, and you talked about when the soul enters the body and that it enters through the bottom of the body. At what point, how many months or weeks or days has the fetus been developing when the soul enters? I love that question. Um, in my work and talking to other energy practitioners, there's, you know, there's kind of a lot of choices. The soul can come in absolutely at any time. I typically don't find the soul comes in until the middle trimester, until somewhere about five months. Uh, and that's most typical. Um, you know, the soul can visit. The soul kind of hovers. Often the soul is interacting with the mom, you know, or maybe even the dad or the loved ones. You know, and the soul's guides are doing the same thing. But the earliest the soul really will lodge in the body is about five months. And some souls don't actually come in until the body is being birthed. Um, it might be for any number of reasons. They don't want to come in. <laughs> They're having fun outside. Uh, they're still in some kind of a school and getting ready for this lifetime. There may not be room for them. Um, you know, there might be so much going on, for instance, in the mother's life that it's not a comfortable place to be or there could be an illness. Um, but typically I would say five months. And, of course, you know, just to state the obvious, I think that's an interesting figure for people, you know, who worry about abortion or um, uh, miscarriage or these type of events you know, that it, it can really leave a lot of women with uh, with an ache, no matter, you know, how, you know, she loses a baby or, or has to, you know, kind of let go of, of a child. But the soul's typically not in the body till at least into the second try. Okay. And then you talked about at the time of death, how the soul exits the body. And you, you mentioned mm -hmm. that it can be preferable for the soul to exit through the top of the head. And I'm curious why that might be preferable and if it matters where the soul exits the body. It, it doesn't typically matter. I'm not going to make a, a really strong case to say, oh, it absolutely matters. Um, but the, the path of enfoldment for most human beings is for the soul to kind of transcend up the chakra ladder, the different energy bodies uh, that are located in the spine and also, I think, outside of the body as well. And, you know, so each of these stages uh, represented by a chakra represents a teaching, a learning, a reason that we're here being human. The lower rungs on the ladder are all about how to 
deal with and love having a physical body, uh, embracing emotions, dealing with thoughts and the mind. You know, of course, then we get to the place of love and communication and perception. You know, and then at the very top of the ladder is what's called the seventh chakra. It's the crown energy center where the pineal gland really uh, kind of holds host. And that's usually seen as the seat of enlightenment. So it's that top of the head, which incidentally is open at birth. That baby's fontanelle, the soft spot, is open when we're born. Um, So the soul can still kind of breathe uh, the so-called heavenly energies in and out until it's just a few months old, um, as can you know, the body, to be honest. Um, and and so that's typically why the soul exits through the top, um, because it's now it's going into so-called higher vibrations. And it's going into layers of reality that tend to, uh, if they were measured, would be measured as more intense, as lighter than the ones that we typically equate with being in the body. So it's a little bit like saying we're just, it's like a dove being released, you know, upward to the stars. And so that's why we tend to think about the soul exiting through the top of the head. I And it doesn't, you know, have to matter if the soul, say, plunges out through the hips or the heart or the elbow or what have you. I think what counts more about the actual time of death or method of death is some souls are really jarred. Um, they're not expecting to die. They're they're shocked. They didn't see it coming. They're not ready. And so if they're suddenly jettisoned out of the body, you know, a soul brings with it the memory of the lifetime, the memory of the body. There's actually a layer around the soul called the etheric that like absorbs and soaks in what the life has been about and our, our memories, our teachings, our learnings, our feelings. You know, so we don't leave anything behind. But that kind of a quick exit We've got the shock value that often also impinges on the soul and can leave a soul just kind of, uh, you know, kind of pushed out of the body, kind of standing there a little little nervous, um, not quite you know, kind of sometimes souls don't even know that they're dead um, because they exit so quickly or fast. And, you know, often those are the kind of beings that then we can call ghosts or phantoms or we use those kind of words to talk about a soul that doesn't necessarily transcend to some of these so-called higher vibrational planes, um, but stays connected in at a, at a really, you know, kind of a dense level, if you would, to the physical plane. Now, it's interesting, as you're talking about the soul entering the body at birth and exiting the body at death, it's almost like mm-hmm. the soul seems to have a volume of mm-hmm. some kind, like to take up space. Or, And I'm curious if you could talk about that, how you see the soul when it's entering or leaving. Does it have a volume? You know, it's a great question. I remember uh, years ago, uh, over the internet, there were a few studies that were floated that uh, that bodies were were weighed right before death and at death, and there was like a point something or other gram <laughs> that was d- different. Um, and who knows if that's really real or if that's just you know kind of the measurement of the breath that is uh, you know that a, a living person breathes in, and that's how much the breath actually weighs. Um, but I actually believe that the soul does have volume. It, it, if you if you call volume space, 
It doesn't necessarily have to have weight. Uh, you know, for instance, there's a number of subatomic particles and weight aspects of light itself that are energy. They, ha- they take up space and they travel in space and even time, but they actually don't have weight. Um, and, you know, some of, some of why it's hard to actually probably pinpoint what kind of volume the soul would have is that the measurement is more spiritual. It's actually energetic or spiritual. I mean, how do we measure a soul uh, that's a good soul, that's done, uh, you know, that, that's, that has served, that has learned, that has been touched uh, by the tears of children, that has, you know, fed the hungry versus the soul of somebody who was greedy and more uh, a, a bit of a maniac or, or um, harming people rather than helping people. So I think that the volume or the, the way we'd measure a soul is, is kind of like what the ancient Egyptians did. You know, they said that a soul would actually be measured, um, but that ironically, the lighter the soul, the more joyous the soul, the lighter than a feather that a soul would be on a scale, um, the the more likely that soul would go into the great beyond and be able to escape you know, what's often called the wheel of time or or reincarnation. They're not going to have to keep doing this over and over again. Not that I think there's anything wrong with doing this life. I think life is wonderful. Um, but but sometimes the, the way to look at a soul is the lighter the soul, actually the probably the more expanded the soul. And now, Cindy, here's something I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about. So, yeah. you know, you talked about how we if we die of a, of a natural cause, not a sudden accident, we might have mm-hmm. a sense that we're in this process for several years, yeah. up to seven yeah. years. Do you think that mm-hmm. people can control the time of their death, choose the time of death? Or is the time of death something that, you know, it's already written. It's written in our astrological chart when we're born. We can't control the time of our death. What do you I think? I think it's Oh, that's a great question. Well, my short answer is that I actually think we have some preordained exit points and that most likely we don't have just one. I'll give you an example. Um, Several, several years ago, about 20 years ago, I had a dream or a message that told me that at some point I was going to get cancer and I could die from it, that I was going to get cancer in my 50s, um, cervical cancer, and I would probably exit from it. And I negotiated being stubborn, uh, Norwegian stubborn, and I said, you know, can we do this a little different? (laughs) Can I like, can I try a different path of death than this? And in my later 30s, I actually got pre-cervical cancer, um, HPV, human papillomavirus, and I spent an entire year processing it, um, doing different kind of of treatments, uh, both allopathic and holistic, you know, and it was a really hard year, to be honest. It was an emotional year. I dealt with a lot of inner issues, pain, childhood issues, soul questions, you know, and I came out of it with a clean bill of health and don't have not gotten cancer and consistently, um, you know, get kind of positive tests. Um, But that was one of my exit points. I had another exit point somewhere in my early 40s when I was just driving down the road and suddenly, Tammy, I could feel the world freezing. And of course, the world didn't freeze. I froze. My soul just froze in my body. And I heard a voice that said, you can leave now. And 
you know, it's it's really dispassionate to hear that. You'd think that I would have conniptions or or feelings or emotions, and I had nothing. And it was almost like I turned inside of my brain and looked backwards, and I saw that I had fulfilled my original soul contact. That what I came to learn and to do, even though the you know the world might say I hadn't done that much at all, you know when I looked backward, I saw mm, you know I kind of came what I first said that I was going to do, so I can leave. And the only reason I stayed was that I could also see my two sons. And I knew instantly that even though my older son would think he doesn't still need a mom, like he so still needed a mom. And, of course, my younger son did need a mom still. And so I just decided to stay. And it was as if I turned back into my head and continued to drive. Um, And, you know, I actually have a sense of when my last exit point is going to be. I had it in a vision. Um, when I was doing some shamanic work in Peru, I was actually, you know, shown that particular death time, you know, and how I would leave and what it would be like and even who was standing around my body. Um, so I, I do believe we do have these potential exit points. I also think, I'm getting to your answer in a long way, I also think that this world is pretty chaotic and there can be true accidents. There can be times that somebody's taken from their body. Um, it, literally accidentally, and it wasn't their time to leave. They didn't plan on leaving, and it just happens. There's just an odd series of events and happenstances that sets this up. Um, and they, the the hard part, though, about choosing the time to die, uh, I think when we're actually in the circumstance when we want to choose to die, I think there's other factors. I think that some people think, I'm ready to die, I'm ill, I have cancer, I want to die within a few days, and they don't go. They may last another year or two or ten years. You know, And I think those types of factors might be their loved ones aren't letting them go or a part of their spirit, kind of more their immortal self or even their soul, says it's just not quite time. Uh, you know, So there's a lot of reasons that there might be a lack of consciousness. Now, my dad, who died about 20 years ago, had lung cancer, and several times he was told during six months that they had so-called cured the cancer or gotten rid of the cancer. They told him that one day, and then within two days, they would the doctors would come and say, no, we're wrong. You still have stage four cancer. And I went to visit him after we'd been going through various treatment modalities, um, for about six months, and he had been given another six months to live beyond that. And I looked at him and I said, Dad, what would you like me to you know, pray for, to hope for, to meditate on for you? And he looked at me and said, I would like to be dead in a week. This is no life. Moving from the bedroom to the dining room, he says, I want to be gone within a week. And I cried and I said, you know, I'll just hold that for you. And he actually died eight days later, um, months earlier than the doctors had so-called decreed. So I'm giving you a lot of different answers. (laughs) Um, I believe there's exit points. I believe there's chaos. I believe there's a lot of factors deciding when we're actually released from this beautiful cocoon of the body. And I do believe that sometimes the soul is strong enough or it's in in, balance kind of um, empowered enough that it gets to choose.
listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, so I want to talk about what happens to the soul now that we're in this conversation together. The the veil has thinned, so we're seeing through it the way Cindy sees. What happens to the soul when it leaves the body? Well, it's rather an exciting time for the soul. Um, I believe that the that there's for many souls, you know, kind of instantly, um, there's just kind of this step away from the body. Um, some souls kind of zip out of so-called material reality right away, you know. But let's insert the step for the souls that don't so-called, um, you know, exit the the plane of earth immediately. Um, some of them literally, it's just like they step away from the body. They tend to be very aware at that point of uh, what, you know, the beings who are typically called their guides. Some of them may have been ancestors, loved ones who were helping them with this transition out of the body. Um, you know, sometimes they're guides from a different lifetime. Sometimes they're uh, familiar uh, with certain religious figures. So if somebody's a Hindu, um, you know, the, the greater all may appear like Krishna or a Christian, maybe Jesus um, or Mary. And so, you know, oftentimes the soul just kind of hovers. And it, and it has this sense of being separate from the body, you know, and yet it's still able to see the body and perceive who and what's around it. I've actually had that happen myself three or four different times. Um, you know, where I was outside of the body looking at my body. And I don't know if you could say my body was actually dead, um, but it was such an out-of-body experience that, you know, I, I'm sure it was very similar to what a lot of souls go through. Um, and depending on the soul's reaction, you know, its sense of preparedness and how well it's able to connect with the guides, you know, it it might have a very peaceful feeling. It might want to give some messages to the people who are around. Um, you know, some souls, you know, I've talked to people who have had near-death experiences and then come back in or been put back into their bodies. You know, sometimes they freak out and they want to restore the body. They, they just don't feel quite ready. Um, but somewhere along the line, after a soul, potentially at least, um, you know, has this time period, there's a series of planes. And they're like levels of reality, bands of reality. They could even be compared to different dimensions. Um, you know, science says it, that we have at least 10 dimensions that we're occupying while alive simultaneously. So I like to compare these planes of light, what as I call them, you know, different vibrational levels that go from lower to higher, um, to kind of the different dimensions. So we just become we start to become aware of them on the soul basis once we're not in the physical body or um though though we can become aware of them while we are. The most typical one that somebody, you know, first goes to um is a plane of rest. And what tends to 
the way the soul, I think, determines or the guidance help it determines, you know, which of these many planes it's going to go to, whether it's going to go to the plane of rest, you know, and just have a little bit of rehab, maybe, maybe, you know, kind of a good stiff drink in some cases or a cup of tea, you know, in others versus any of the other planes because it doesn't have to go in order, you know, is, you know, kind of, kind of a sense of what's happened during that lifetime and cumulative lifetimes and which so-called tunnel that a, uh, and you've heard of tunnels, people usually read near-death experiences and somebody talks about there, there were these tunnels, you know, that they could go through and that would take them to different places or spaces. Um, there's different kinds of tunnels. There are tunnels that go kind of down. I'm not talking about hell. I'm saying they just go to, to lower vibrations. There's tunnels that are made out of kind of a higher vibration or more intense light, and those tend to go, you know, kind of into some more of these more enlightened planes of existence or planes post-death. And so a soul is going to kind of naturally go toward or in and through a tunnel and into a plane that it matches. You know, it's not much different than um, everyday reality. You know, like attracts like. So if I'm at a certain place or level or vibratory level, um, you know, that I need to do healing work or I'm ready to you kind of learn more truths or I've been very loving in this lifetime and so I can go right to the plane of love, all of the themes I've mentioned you know, kind of representing different planes, that's then where I'm going to ascend or transcend into. So typically a soul kind of stays around for a while and or, you know, exits, you know, kind of one of these tunnels into one of the planes. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really important, Tammy, to point out about these planes is nothing's quite as fixed in stone as we think. So, you know, when we're in life, when we take an airplane and we fly to um, the De Gaulle Airport over to Paris, we're in Paris. We, we, don't, we can't be in Germany and Paris at the same time. Um, you know, however, being a soul, we can be in Paris and we might be able to visit Germany with just a thought and maybe even communicate, kind of like we have these really cool after-death cell phones, <laughs> you know, or holographic uh, kind of slide maneuverings, a slideshow maneuverings, you know, where we can be on a plane, um, maybe a, a specific one, maybe we can visit another one, and maybe we can show up for our living uh, loved ones, um, you know, kind of at the same time. Um, time isn't so linear. It's not linear at all, really, kind of in the afterlife. And and so there's a lot of interconnections and moving around that we, um, it's hard for our solid brains to understand. You know, we can tend to understand it through more of a meditative stance or, you know, if we've had spiritual experiences, there's a lot of interconnectivity. Um, I had a, I have a friend who, beautiful man whose father died a few years ago. And, uh, once his father died, my friend Mark started to have contact with his father. Um, but he said, Cindy, my father wasn't just my father. He wasn't the man, you know, with the name, I'm just going to make up a name, the, the, the name, you know, Luke. He was more than Luke. He was something bigger and different. And when he shows up for me, he's with a whole community. Like there's, he's in a wholeness. He's in this beautiful space. And he's trying to teach me how to be that here. 
Um, and so one night, Mark and his wife came over, and another friend of mine uh, came over, and we sat in my office, and it looked pretty seancey, to be honest. You know, this little dark <laughs> office, and we, I know, it's kind of fun, though, and lit a candle, and we wanted to talk to Mark's dad. And all of a sudden, the room just got, I can't even use a word besides illuminated. It just, it just illuminated, and I could feel the presence of all these beings. And I could feel the person that, you know, Mark would call his father. Um, but the message that was being given with all these beings present, you know, was that there really isn't a veil. So we're pretending, you know, you and I right now that there isn't a veil, but the truth is there isn't one. And God honest, Mark held out his hands, his father, etc., said, hold out your hands, Mark. And Mark held out his hands and it, within two seconds, there was a gold bowl um, just shimmering in Mark's hands. Okay, I mean, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. A gold bowl, meaning out of nowhere, it, this materialized? Out of nowhere. Yeah. Like we were, like we were gurus. <laughs> like we were these really enlightened gurus, which we're not. <laughs> An honest-to-God gold bowl, like a chalice of some sort. Was, was it there Mark's in the morning? Hands. No. And it was only there for maybe a minute to be really honest. <laughs> so I have to work on that technique a little bit. Um, but it was a gold bowl. I could see it. Mark could see it. Mark could touch it. I could reach out and touch it. Mark's wife only saw a light. She couldn't see the gold bowl. The other you know, gentleman there could not see anything. So we all had a different experience, but Mark and I had the same experience of a gold bowl. And this group of beings saying, there's no separation between where we are and you are. It was fascinating. I just saw Mark over the weekend, and we, we went over the story again. Because, you know, you start to go, did I make that up? But where there's two people seeing it, we saw it. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you mm-hmm. mentioned that before the soul enters one of these tunnels and goes to one of these levels, that potentially the soul might stay around for a while. And, you know, I've heard in some traditions there's there's actually, you know, they say 49 days or there's a period of time. And I'm curious what your view of this is. Well, and I think a lot of it does depend on tradition. You know, a soul is going to perceive what it's been saturated in, what is believed to be true, you know, during that lifetime. So, for instance, there's a tribe in Madagascar that keeps the dead, uh, dead bodies under trees for two years because they believe that the soul is an elder soul now that it's dead and has agreed to stay around for two years and guide the tribe. Um, you know, and yes, there's usually a, at least two days, um, you know, if not, you know, seven days for most cultures, um, where the belief is that the soul is around. And, and in some cultures, you can't burn the body for two days, or, or you're supposed to burn the body right away to free the soul, or it can't get out. So there's a lot of different beliefs. I think what they are all acknowledging, though, is that where there is love, you know, the soul will tend to remain for a while to make sure that um, you know, that the right thing is done, that that there's um, kind of sharing and messages and, um, you know, anything that needs to be finished to be finished. I've had many experiences with souls that have just died, um, you know, interacting with me. One, in fact, was a woman I didn't even know, I never met. I had for years worked with a client who... Um, I'll just call her Jane, who really did not get along with her mother. I mean, she really didn't get along with her mother. 
And I knew that Jane's mother was ailing, but I had, you know, no idea just, you know, how how poor off the the mom was in terms of her uh, in terms of her body. And one morning I was sleeping um, at the end of a hallway, you know, and there's a living room on the other side of that hallway, and there's a locked door <laughs> going into my house. No kidding, five in the morning, my my front door. It's a real door, you know, like it's not like a wimpy door. It blew <laughs> open. I could feel the breeze. I could I could feel this cold draft coming down the hallway into my room. And I heard a voice say, tell her that there are angels. Well, I didn't know who that was. I just know I was awakened. You know, I wasn't scared, but it was a very dramatic entrance for whoever this was. And I went back to sleep, and at 7, I got up and listened to my voicemail. And a few minutes before, my client, Jane, had left a message that her mother had died at 5 in the morning. And her mom wanted to get a message to Jane. She probably couldn't give it directly to my client because my client, you know, understandably so, was going to have grief and probably a lot of other feelings as well. Um, But because of my connection, you know, to Jane and because I'm, you know, kind of somewhat open to these things, she could tell me what she wanted her daughter to know. I don't believe Jane's mother stayed very long. I actually think she went quite immediately, you know, to a different plane. But before she went, you know, she immediately, you know, kind of delivered a message. Um, and, you know, and so some some stay for a while, you know, some leave right away and then come back even after a number of years. My dad, who died 20 years ago, he was never a man for a lot of words. And even as a even as a soul, he's not, but he's appeared to me five or six times in very, very short, you know, kind of little little periods, you know, one time to show me actually something he did to hurt me that I didn't remember. And I cried and I was fine. I mean, then it was like I was well without even knowing I had been sick, um, you know, emotionally. A um, couple times he showed up, you know, because he was in a lot of agony about his life. Um, the last time I actually saw him, saw him spiritually, I like saw his energy, he was beautiful. He was an enlightened being. Um, and I think it's interesting that ever that since then, I've had a couple um, other dreams that have been much more like what my dad was like in real life. Like um, one time he showed up and he said, I have found a mate for you. And I'm going, oh, well, I don't know about this. <laughs> so he, my my dad, you know, said there's a man whose name starts with a J, and he's a pilot, and he's a coach, and I want you to meet him. I mean, that's pretty precise, don't you think, after mm-hmm. 20 years of death, Tammy? Yeah. And, I, yeah, so I, I don't remember how I met this man, but he asked me out. This was just like a year ago or so. His name was started with a J, um, he had been in the Air Force and had a pilot's license. Um, he he and he owned a restaurant with the very same name as my father. My dad's name is Wally. This man owns a restaurant named Wally's Restaurant. Couldn't be weirder. Now I didn't. Did you like Wally? Man. Did you like Wally? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> so, which just goes to show that as well intentioned as the dead are. It's not that they necessarily um, should be steering your life. <laughs> yeah. But that, and he was a coach. He was actually a coach at Mike's son's school, which I think is ironic. <laughs> you know, but the, but the dead interact. They can interact with us is the takeaway on that. 
I'm just not sure I want him lining me up with my, my you know, forever person. Now, now, I'm curious about something, Cindy. Do you feel that we choose which of these planes of light we go to, or is it just something that happens based on whatever level of evolution we're at? I would tend to, and of course I can't prove this, Tammy, but I would well, tend to Well, you can't prove a lot of the things you're saying, Cindy. <laughs> You can't prove any, no, you can't. I can just give anecdotes. <laughs> I think it's the second. I think it's much more about some intrinsic, um, you know, kind of level of learning uh, and, you know, kind of, if, if you would, where our soul is at, you know, that naturally matches us up to one of the planes. I mean, I would love to say that I'm ready to be elevated, you know, right to the very top. Um, but you know what? You know, who knows? I may be near the near the bottom or in the middle. And it, and it doesn't mean there's something wrong, you know, if we go to one of the so-called lower planes rather than the higher planes. You know, it's just that's what we need. Um, that's a measurement of, of what we are and what we need. So it's actually very loving, I think, to gravitate toward or to be kind of linked with the plane, you know, that truly uh, kind of matches uh, what's going on with us. And how do the chakras relate to the planes of light if they do? Well, I believe that they do. I believe that each chakra actually equates with one of the planes I work with a 12-chakra system. Um, many people work with a 7-chakra system. Some people work with, like, a 53-chakra system. And, um, you know, whatever works for any of us, I think that's kind of what we want to embrace or concentrate on. Um, but kind of in my world, <laughs> my little mini world, um, each of the chakras actually relates to one of the planes. And I think what's beautiful about that, you know, is that we actually get to work through or embrace the teachings of that plane while we're alive. And for those of us who are oriented um you know, toward the chakras, we can do that through the chakra system. Of course, we don't have to. We don't have to, um, you know, kind of match up, you know, that particularly. Um, but I do think that the chakras are like gateways that enable us to to touch into these these various planes. And I think a lot of people have devised chakra-based systems for enlightenment. Um, you know, even the study of Kundalini, the kind of life energy that the Hindu talks about, but a lot of other cultures, um, you know, speak to this kind of evolving sense of life energy, going from physical to consciousness. Um, you know, there's vehicles of learning. There's initiation points. And the chakras are very similar, uh, in fact, to those. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. So most people, I think, mm -hmm. are familiar with a seven chakra system. So can right. you introduce us to the 12 chakra system that you're working with? I would love to. The first seven are the same. So some things remain constant. So one through seven, we've got, you know, one physical hips, two emotions, abdomen, three belief systems, mental activity in the stomach area, Four, heart, healing, and love. Fifth is in the throat that has to do with communication. Sixth is in that third eye area and vision. Seventh is top of the head, spirituality, enlightenment. The eighth is just a tiny bit 
above the head. Uh, it's like a pinprick, but it's the home of the shaman and the mystical aspect of us. So it locks into the physical body, actually in the thymus. So even the ones that are so-called outside of the body still relate to places in the body, glands and and uh, locations. Um, but the eighth is, is that place that takes us into the different dimensions, the zones. It's actually the ideal entryway if we want to experience these planes um, it, meditatively or through so-called journeying or astral travel. You know, it's our eighth chakra self, our shaman self, the able to do it. Ninth chakra is about an arm's length above the head. That's the place of harmony and kind of holy power. I see it as gold. It's beautiful. Now, I reversed out. The tenth chakra is underneath the feet, about a foot and a half underneath the feet. Some people call this the earth star or the star chakra or what, what have you. Um, and that's the one that's very nature-based. Um, it, it actually holds our connection to our heritage, to our genetics, to those who came before, but our connection to this planet. I believe the eleventh chakra is actually around our body, way out. It's like a film, um, though it's most congested, uh, condensed around our hands and feet, and it's the one that really enables us to command um, supernatural energies, natural energies. I've met shamans, for instance, in other countries who really can change the weather, you know, or move things around, and I think they're using that particular chakra. And the 12th chakra is my name for that, which is all the way around us, some affiliated with what the shamans call the energy egg or one layer of it, you know, kind of this oval outer bound of who we are. And, and I believe that's just a beautiful translucent layer, you know, kind of after which we pass through. You know, we're really going into um, other realms, higher realms, um, you know, there's all kinds of researchers and esoterics who have said there's all these layers of reality, you know, and it's easier to get to them, of course, once we pass through that outer 12 uh, chakra or, or layer. So those five outside chakras, to me, are extraordinarily helpful to work with, you know, as a healer or somebody who, if I need to get some focus in my life, I mean, to tap into the one that's underneath the ground, you know, is to be grounded, is to be present, is to be in our body while we're in our body, um, is to tap into ancestral knowledge. And and so I really love working with those five chakras, um, you know, because they get us just a little bit outside of the norm and, um, you know, kind of edging towards some of this, uh, you know, you know, the, both environmentally interesting, but also supernaturally interesting sort of sort of arenas. OK, so something that's not clear to me as you're speaking mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. what my relationship is to these 12 different chakras and how that might influence which of the planes of light I would naturally go to? Because you're saying each of these chakras is connected to one of the planes of light, but Mm -hmm. how's the relationship Mm -hmm. in my life? I mean, I want to be in a healthy place in all 12 chakras, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we will, for the most part, I believe our soul is going to go where we need the most help after death. So the the planes, you know, are kind of just a little out of order in the numbering, but let's not worry about that. So the first plane, I call the plane of rest. You know, it's the one that many, many people talk about, like, you know, who have had near-death experience, 
senses, you know, I died, and then I was just in this peaceful place. I was in this garden. I was in this place where I just didn't have to worry about anything or work on anything. I could just be. Um, And that relates to the energy center underneath the ground. So I believe that post-death, if we haven't really enabled ourselves to have enough rest, uh, rehabilitation, we haven't really experienced the fullness of nature, you know, and the restorative powers of nature. This is why it's not a punishment to go to one of the lower planes. You know, that's where we're going to go because that's where we need to be. You know, that's what's going to most heal our soul, uh, soothe our soul, assist us, you know, kind of from an eternal perspective, not just a single lifetime perspective. You know, and so if we feel like in our lives, that's an area in our life that, oh, it's really challenging for us. Um, You know, we're stuck in a concrete jungle. We don't get outside. We're struggling with issues, um, family of origin, you know, going back. I mean, I could go on and on with the list that this 10th chakra, um, you know, relates to, you know, all the way down to, um, you know, what they call the epigenes, this chemical soup around the genes that actually holds our ancestors' memories. You know, if we feel like we're in any way kind of stuck or not really flowing in those kind of areas, that might be in life where we want to focus because automatically, Tammy, we'll start to bring in the plane of rest. We'll start to bring in the help, the assistance, the guidance, the the higher energies that typically we don't avail ourselves of until we're on the other side. And my proposition is, wow, look at the help that we have when we're dead. It's It exists right now. What if we were to open to it right now? What if we were to help our ancestors heal us right now? What if we were to send healing to our ancestors right now? Um, you, you know, in essence, we then get to incorporate, and you could even say graduate from the plane of rest while we're alive. And so I really encourage people to look at, you know, where they might um, benefit the most, you know, in terms of the matchup between the chakras and the planes, you know, and say, oh, you know, I really need more healing work. So, um, you know, that's where they're going to focus. Or I don't have enough peace in my life, you know, because we're going to be taken to where we need to be. Um, And if, you know, I haven't really achieved a real sense of inner peace, uh, I may want to work on the related chakra and you know now and not work on it in a hard way open to the help of that plane so that there can be this sense of fluid um mobility and i can feel like i'm being uplifted you know while i'm opening to learning what peace is and how can i how can i incorporate it in my body mind and soul so we're taken where we need to grow not yes. not to the plane that we've mastered or the level of development Not that we've mastered. Not to where mastered. we mastered. We tend to have mastered the plane right underneath the one that we're taken in. So we tend to go to the one that we're working on, that we need to work on, that matches up with us, you know, in terms of what we're, you know, what we're ready to, to do, what we're ready to walk into. Okay. And then is your sense that these planes of light are places that we stay in the afterlife until we incarnate in a physical body again? I think so. Yep, I think that's for the most part what we do. Now, you know, we can be like a piano player, you know, and go between planes of light, right? And, you know, in between life, we can go to two or three planes. We can, we can, you know, 
uh, you know, have have a, a great time even returning to one that we've already mastered because there's something really cool we want to re-experience there. Um, but I do believe that's where we are. That's where we stay until we come back or we go to ports unknown as well. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, like, for instance, the fourth plane is the plane of knowledge, you know, and I always picture that like this big library, but I, you know, my house looks like a library. I love books. Um, so knowing me, I, if I had a choice, no matter what plane I should go work on, I would be going to the plane of knowledge. <laughs> That's why I think the system is set up to get beyond people like me, you know, who would just keep going to the same place and probably never evolve. Um, you know, so I can easily access knowledge in this lifetime, you know, so that's what I've experienced. Um, you know, but, but, you know, once we've kind of saturated ourselves on a plane, you know, it's time to come back and put that information, put the learning and the wisdom to work. And that's what the earth plane is about. We get to see what it means. You know, if we've been working on knowledge, let's go put it to some use. Let's go see what happens with that knowledge, you know, interactively in a physical body um, with people. So, yeah, I th- I, we tend to return. Now, some people, while they're on a plane, actually, though, turn into guides. So it's not like there's just these two choices. Like, okay, we're dead and on a plane, or we're alive, and maybe if we know that we can, we're working on our stuff, our soul stuff. Um, I, I believe on many of these planes, souls actually can turn into guides you know, for people on that plane, other planes, souls on that plane or other planes, or even the living. Um, I had this years and years ago. I had six months where I don't know exactly why, but all these parents whose children had committed suicide came to see me. I probably worked with 30 to 40 families. And, it, you know, it, 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 uh, it was just that stage of what I was working on. And from my perspective, my intuitive perspective, you know, a few of these kids, you know, who had committed suicide went to, you know, many of them, I think, went to the plane of healing, you know, rest or healing, et cetera. But they turned around and became guides. You know, they turned around and decided, you know, they weren't being punished. They turned around and started to help, you know, the depressed people here or other kids. And, you know, so I think, Everything on or because of the planes that we go through in life can be turned into something transformative for ourselves or for others. So even on a plane, it's not like we're locked away. You know, there can be many ways that we so-called master that plane or start to live it out or act it out. Now, I'm curious, Cindy, how, let me see, how literally, how concretely you take your vision of all of this and how much you might see it as somewhat malleable, somewhat metaphorical, or how how do you really see it, your vision? I would say that for me, I take it as um, like about 80% of, you know, I believe it. (laughs) I put a percentage on it. I love that. Are you kidding me? You're speaking in numbers. You're speaking my language. Yeah, I like numbers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even when I'm working with a client, every so often I'll like tune in and go, okay, how accurate is this? You know, and I'll go, oh, it's like 75%. Okay, we're getting there. Um, you know, I'd say that, you know, this, this about 80% of this is accurate. You know, now there's a whole bunch more that there's no way I probably am capable of perceiving or is going to fit in a book or I'm, you know, supposed to be the person to teach it. Um, you know, this is just what I'm called to teach. 
and you know, or share, and you know, to help the people that it relates to. Um, and you know, I think if there's anything certain about life or death, like the rule book goes out the window. Um, honestly, Tammy, because just anything can happen. You know, I write these books on systems, and, you know, that's great. I write books about here's the chakra system, here's the naughty system, here's this, that, and the other thing. But I have to tell you, when I'm working with a client, I swipe all that stuff from my mind, you know, and I just try to connect and say, what is it I'm supposed to share or know or what's supposed to happen for this person? my mind can go into the systems I'm aware of or the data or the knowledge or what I know about science or herbs or planes of light, um, you know, but but I don't really like information to get in the way of obtaining deeper truths either. And And so I would always tell somebody, you don't have to take this as the gospel. You know, this is a guideline, and it's really written more to help people while they're alive than anything else to help them get some structure that could be useful for for gaining this incredible knowledge that we keep thinking we're going to get when we're dead and it's like why not why not open to it while we're alive i mean why not literally die while we're alive why not literally take in and saturate us with ourselves with this kind of these levels of consciousness okay i just have one final question for you mm-hmm. i'd love to know what you see as the purpose, if you will, of our soul going through lifetime after lifetime, what you understand as the this model of soul evolution? I think that's a great question, um, because I I really believe the purpose is joy. And I think that we've convinced ourselves on a soul level, you know, um, because we bit the apple of the tree of knowledge and now think we have to learn the difference between good and bad and we have to do karma. I think we've convinced ourselves that there have to be all these steps between where we are and being able to be joyous. And I don't mean by the word joy, bliss or ecstasy. I don't mean just like crazy out there joy. I mean simple gratitude, satisfaction, um, empathy, compassion, connection. You know, there's many, many types of joy. And any feeling can grow into some version of joy. Um, So defined that way, I really think it's about joy. Um, And I think we believe that there's an awful lot that we have to learn um, to to be in a place of, you know, of joy or contentment. Um, And so then, you know, we set about learning it. And it's certainly interesting to learn, you know, how the universe works and how the soul, you know, cooks itself. Uh, But ultimately, I think it's about that sense of just connected joy. I've been speaking with Cindy Dale, and with Sounds True, she's released a new book called The Journey After Life, What Happens When We Die. Also with Sounds True, a book on energetic boundaries, how to stay protected and connected in work, love, and life. A book called The Subtle Body Encyclopedia. Cindy, you're a very prolific author, I might say. I think so. And another new book with Sounds True called The Subtle Body Practice Manual, as well as an online course, The Subtle Body Training Course, and an audio series called Advanced Chakra Wisdom. 
Cindy, you know, really, I have to say, it's a joy to talk with you. It's a joy to feel your bubbliness, your excitement, your love of what you do and what you see. And uh, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. I feel the same way. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.